What are the practices and processes that are conducive to theoretical development? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Carlos Colari in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Carlos Alberto Scolari. Carlos is full professor at Universitat Pompeu Fabra in Barcelona, Spain, where he has been there since 2010. Before then, he was associate professor, tenured associate professor at Universitat Vic, also in Spain. Um, before that, he obtained uh, his PhD in Applied Linguistics and Languages of Communication at Universitat Cattolica di Milano in Italy. And before that, he was an interaction designer and a project manager for over 10 years at Ars Media, also in Italy. Carlos is an exceedingly prolific scholar. He has written no less than 11 books, between books and edited volumes, in the past decade. Has also written lots and lots of journal articles, has been very prolific in the grant getting seen, including a Transliteracy Horizon 2020 Research and Innovations Actions Grant uh, between 15, 2015 and 2018 of more than a million euros. He's been a visiting scholar at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development at NYU, and also at the University of Toronto, previously in the Strategic Innovation Lab. Carlos, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo, for the invitation and to, to give me the possibility of talking about, about media communication and my research. Hey, we are delighted that you accepted our invitation, Carlos. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic? Well, I started my undergraduate courses in 1983 in the university, the National University of Rosario in Argentina. And in that moment, we still had the military government, the dictatorship. So when I arrived to university, it was, a, it was the, maybe one of the most beautiful moments of the Argentinian life. It was very hard because we received a lot of information about what had happened during the dictatorship and the desaparecido, but it was a moment of a lot of political life, uh, people coming back from, um, from exiles, no? So they were coming back to Argentina. And I think it was a beautiful moment to live this transition 
from the dictatorship to the democracy, to leave that inside the university. So was a moment of um, a lot of discussions, not only political discussion, a lot of theoretical discussions. Uh, imagine that uh, the, the Argentina for about seven years, eight years, was completely isolated because of the dictatorship. So they burned books in Argentina. So democracy was very important because it was like to, uh, we could read many things that were prohibited during the dictatorship. So I arrived to the university in that moment. Um, it took me four years to finish the licenciatura, the undergraduate courses. And I finished the university uh, in, in the University of Rosario, my undergraduate on the 24th of June, 1987, the same day that Lionel Messi was born in Rosario. And I worked in the university for three years. I started working as a young scholar, teaching communication theories, doing my first researches. And at the end of the 80s, after all this beautiful explosion of democracy, I perceived that the process was finishing this openness. And I don't know, I, I was looking for new horizons. So I was looking for scholarships. I wanted to, to study abroad and I presented, I don't remember so many proposals, I, applications to go to Europe, to go to Colombia, Mexico, uh, and, uh, Spain, Italy. And finally my girlfriend, now my wife, she found a, a scholarship and we moved to Italy in 1980, in 1990, sorry, 98, So I arrived to Italy and in that moment, there were two revolutions in Italy. One was the political revolution of television and Berlusconi. And the second one was the digital revolution, the, the web arrived. So um, I started working. I was not in university in Italy in 1990. And I started working in a media, multimedia production company. So practically, I lived the digital revolution uh, working in a professional environment. Uh, I continue to read um, books, for example, Pierre Levy, all the discussion about the hypertext and all this um, new media and cyber culture production, Wire magazine, obviously, but I was not in the university. I was um, for about 10 years working in professional field and practically I start producing floppy disk with hypertext. Then we start producing CD-ROMs, multimedia CD-ROMs, and in 95, we start producing websites. So practically, I lead the first generation of this uh, digital transformation working in professional environments. And in 98, I say, okay, I would like to go back to university. I want a PhD. And obviously, being in Italy, I decided to do my PhD in semiotics. And my PhD thesis that I, I did between 98 and 2002, was in the Catholic University of Milan. My supervisor was uh, Gianfranco Bettini. Uh, Bettini was the same generation of Umberto Eco and Paolo Fabri, the first generation of semioticians. And my thesis was about semiotics of interfaces. So it was um, my everyday experience in the design of digital interfaces. I analyzed that from a semiotic point of view. And in 2002, I moved with my family, my wife and my children. We came to Barcelona. And since 2002, 20 years ago, I, I came back to university. So 
I'm, uh, I've been an academic for the last 20 years, but I think my experience in professional environment was very important. Mm, the ways of analyzing media, um, working with media and doing research, and the dynamics of doing research is completely different after working in, 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 in private companies in, in this case. So that's more or less my, 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 my history. Excellent. So, so can we go a little bit deeper on, on this last issue? So how do you think, um, having spent a decade in Ars Technica, right, in the company, influenced how you approach your research problems, your research questions, uh, the angles, uh, etc.? Well, it, it was fantastic because in, in, I started the PhD in 98 and uh, in the morning I was working in this company, Ars Media, they, they're still in, in Torino, in Italy. And it was fascinating because in the morning I was uh, designing the interaction design of the CD-ROM or the website or also installation, interactive installations. And in the afternoon and also in the night, I was working in my PhD research about um, semiotics of interfaces. In the specific case of my PhD, I analyzed the evolution of the interfaces of word processors. I analyzed the evolution of Clarin.com, the Argentinian online newspaper. And I also analyzed the artistic productions to see the different ways of doing the design in the interface and the creation of meaning through interactive waves. So it was, a, it was perfect because I, I knew very well how to create these. I have a good knowledge of the different possibilities of interaction design. I was upgraded with the new things in interaction design, both in, for websites and, and CD-ROMs. So it was not difficult for me to, to select the, the research object because it was part of my everyday life. And I think I, I because the risk of this is, not to have a distance between the, the object that you're analyzing and, and your approach. But I think I, I, I think working with semiotics is useful because you develop, you have very, very clear instruments to analyze that. So it's more a chirurgical uh, work that you do. So in that sense, I, I think I, I had a good distance. I never analyzed my interfaces, for example, that I, I, I always recommend not to do that. You have to always analyze other things, not the things that we are producing. If, and if you are analyzing the things that you are producing, you have to create this distance because it's not easy to do that. Very interesting. Now, you are wrapping up your PhD and you decided to get an academic job, right? Um, did you consider staying in industry? Mm, I would like, but... You know, the, the, when you are full-time in university, it's very difficult. I'm talking about Spain, the same in Italy. For example, I know I have colleagues in the UK that they move, it's very easy to move from the university to the BBC, and maybe they work in the BBC two or three years. They still do activities in the academic world. Then they move to the academic world and they do not work so much in the private environment. In Spain, it's very difficult. If you are a full-time professor, you are a full-time professor. In any case, I still try to keep contact with these people. Sometimes I try to do things. Sometimes I miss 
uh, the adrenaline <laughs> of the <laughs> production. But in this sense, I have been collaborating with this company in Italy. For example, they have joined us in the H2020 project. This company where I used to work, they take care of the dissemination, the production of the books, the website, the videos. And it was really great to work with them because the quality of the outcomes were fantastic. So when I try, I, 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 when it's possible, I try to, to keep contact with, different, with the companies. Yes, obviously. Okay. Now, you were born and raised and did your first degree in Argentina. Then you lived in Italy for over 10 years. And then you moved to Spain, where you've been for about 20 now. How's the experience of a Latin American scholar in Europe in general? And are there any differences or similarities that are not worth it between Italy and Spain on this front? Well, um, as an you are an immigrant. I was an immigrant. I've been in Italy in 1990, one year without documents. <laughs> so I know what it means to be an illegal immigrant. Um, finally, I could organize my situation, my documents. So I was a legal. Now I'm an Italian citizen. I have an Italian passport. But in the beginning, it was very hard. And we, we have to compare, you know, my, 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 my surname Scolari. My grandparents were Italian. My, um, um, sorry, my grandparents were Argentinian. The parents of my grandparents were Italian people who moved to Argentina in 1880. So for me, 20, 30 years ago, to go to Italy, to Spain, I would say, no, let's go to Spain because we have the same language. Uh, so I didn't have this contact with my Italian family. Being in Italy, I established some kind of contact with all, when I was in Argentina, we didn't have any contact with these people. Um, so we have this idea for Argentinian people that, no, go to Italy, it's like it's your family, it's your country. Uh, and it's, mm, that's a big difference, I think. It's, 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 I think I, I feel closer to Argentina, my family, and Latin America being in Spain than in Italy. Mm -hmm. Because maybe because in my case, there were about three generations between the real Italian people and I was coming back to the, to the country. And uh, in that sense, moving to Spain means to have more information in the newspaper everywhere. In, in television, they talk more about Latin America than being in Italy, for example. And also the exchanges with the Latin American academic circuit. Uh, you know, for example, in semiotics, in the 60s, 70s, there was a strong connection between Latin America, um, especially Buenos Aires, and uh, Italian semioticians. There was very strong connection, and French semioticians. And in the last years or decades, is not so strong this exchange between Italian and Argentinian semioticians, for example. It's not so strong the exchange. Instead, between Spain and Latin America, there are many connections. There are many, many uh, Latin American students, master courses or PhD doing the PhD in Spain. So in that sense, I see the exchanges are more active between Latin America and Spain. Okay. The and language and the tradition is very important. Right. right. Even though you have worked in Catalonia, right, where um, Catalan is the primary language of instruction at universities, or am I mistaken on, on that? Uh, not exactly. 
There's a, okay. big, there's a big discussion about this because if you see, you know, in Catalonia, we have the linguistic immersion. That means it's a system that when children arrive to school, the main in primary school, I mean, the main important language is Catalan and Spanish and English is introduced, but the, 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 the main basic formation is more in Catalan, okay? So um, when you arrive to maybe to high school, it's more 50-50, depending on the areas, because it's not the same in Barcelona, that I live 50 miles from Barcelona, here everyone speaks Catalan. And in Barcelona, we have more immigration, so it's, it's more, uh, you hear more Spanish, obviously, in Barcelona. But in, in university, uh, it's, it's more complex, the situation, because um, we have classes in Catalan uh, in the university. Yes, there are universities in Catalonia, I'm talking about undergraduate, where, for example, 80% of the classes are in Catalan. But in the most important big public universities in Barcelona city, Catalan is maybe 40, 50, 60% of the classes are in Catalan. And the rest of the classes are in Spanish. But for example, in my university, Pompeu Fabra, more and more we have courses in English in the undergraduate. I teach two courses in advertising and public relations um, degree. And one of them is in Spanish and Catalan, and the other one is in English. When we arrive to the master courses, more and more we have uh, English courses hmm, in English language. Uh, also in Spanish, a little bit in Catalan. And in the PhD, I coordinate the PhD program in communication. It's a trilingual program, but most of our activities, we have activities in Catalan, we have activities in Spanish, more, and more and more we have activities in English. So I think in, in that sense, I, I, my visualization of this is that primary school, we have a lot of Catalan. Then when you grow up, there's more, more and more Spanish, obviously. And uh, English is, mm, the higher you arrive in, in, in this path, you, it's more and more in English. So in that sense, as the educational uh, you know, process progresses over the years, it becomes more globalized, it seems yes. to Yes, imagine that we, we have courses in English and we have a lot of Erasmus, they want to come to Barcelona, exchange students, so they select the courses in Spanish and in, obviously they, they select more the courses in English and sometimes in Spanish. And sometimes there are also Erasmus that they, they like Catalan or they have studied Catalan in their countries. And maybe because of maybe the father or the mother, they are from Catalonia, so maybe they select. But in general, the exchange students that come to Barcelona, they look for English courses or, or Spanish. Okay. Now, going back in time, um, you get your PhD uh, in Italy, you start in Spain. Um, how was the transition from being, a, you know, part-time doctoral student, part-time worker to a full-time faculty member. And, and what is the process um, in Spain for career advancement within the university system? Is it similar to the tenure process in the US or to a certain degree in the UK or is it different? Okay, well, it was very hard to work outside the university and to do the PhD program. But, well, I did it. I, I finished the PhD when I was 38 years old. 
So it, 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 I was a little bit tired of the professional environment, uh, running all the day behind the clients and the production. So I wanted to go back to the university to process all this experience working with digital media. So I was looking for that. Um, I arrived to Spain in 2002, and that was the moment of the Bologna process, the whole European university system. So I arrived here, I had a little perception of the old system, but immediately we started working with the new Bologna system. Uh, it was a big change because when I arrived to Spain in 2002, um, we have the model, the traditional model of the lecture, the professor talking two hours to students. That model in Argentina 87 was old. And I had my way of doing that I learned in Argentina in the second half of the 80s was completely different to works in project groups. We had our lectures, but it was more active. So when I arrived to Spain, for me it was an old pedagogical environment, but immediately we had the Bologna process and that was very good for the Spanish university. Uh, in the sense that these new methodologies um, working in projects and groups was introduced 15 years ago. It was not easy because old people, they didn't want to change, but the new generation of people, they changed. When I arrived to Spain, uh, the scholars, they wanted to publish in, in Spanish journals. was the ambition because the requirements were that ones to publish in more or less a good position um, indexed in Spanish journals. And I leave the transition to English um, in the last 15 years. So more and more um, people is publishing in English now in Spain. Um, and so are, the Bologna process in Spain introduced also this idea that you know very well of looking to the best journals to confront with international environments. We haven't finished this process yet. We have a lot to do. If you see in the ICA conference, uh, I've been in ICA since 2005. I guess that I miss only two in, in Phoenix and Singapore, I guess, but I, I participate in all the ICA conferences and think when ICA, had about a thousand and five hundred people before London 2013. Um, more or less in that period, maybe there were 20, 25 Spanish researchers in ICA. There was very little, but now the presence of Spanish researchers, young people, is increasing more and more and more. Right now, my, I coordinate the PhD program. Now we have one of our students is visiting Cambridge University and the other one I think is in Pennsylvania. We have people taking courses, summer courses in Amsterdam. So the new generation is completely global aside. They, they, they're moving, they know very well and they're moving and they're constructing alliances and looking for partners around the world. And that's it's one, one generation, 20 years. Now, what, you, what you are describing, which is fascinating, is a transformation in the Spanish higher education system, looking more towards the US, looking more towards Europe. Um, how about 
I mean, Spain has an obvious, you know, long history with Latin America, right? How do you see the connections between the Spanish Academy and the Latin American Academy? Well, I think there's also a transformation of a little transformation of that. Colonial, colonialism exists in the sense that many postgraduate courses in Spain, they used to attract a lot of Latin American students. So in some cases, not a lot, in some cases, it's like a market. Mm? Uh, but I think, for example, in the case of our university, my university, Pompeu Fabra, um, in our PhD program, every year we receive about 30% of our candidates, they come from Catalonia, Spain, 30% come from Latin America and 30% from the rest of the world. So I think it's a real international program. Other universities still have a lot of people from Latin America, but I think, well, it's a historical relationship. Um, I think another important element is that now we have a, a series of Latin American journals improving their position in the index. So we also have now Spanish researchers trying to publish in Latin American journals. Latin American journals are not published only in Spanish or Portuguese. Now they're publishing also articles in English. So I think it's, it's the whole process. Obviously, when we talk about Latin America, it's not the same the situation of Brazil and Argentina or Chile and Colombia and Ecuador. We have different policies and different strategies. For example, in Brazil, about 15, 20 years ago, they published the Brazilian journal of uh, or journalism, international something about journalism. It was a Brazilian publication only in English. So the case of Mexico is different because they're very close to the USA. So they have been in contact uh, with um, American scholars for a long time. No? It's, uh, in Argentina, in that sense, I think it's, it's, we have been more close to that. And usually Argentinian people, at least our generation, when we wanted to go abroad, we looked to Europe. And now your team, for example, in Chicago, there are so many people from Latin America and from Argentina. Also. So I think the things are moving in the good sense. Um, we still have these discussions about the use of English, um, but I think this is good. It's good that we have a more international environment. And I know great people um, doing research in Argentina from, for example, from my generation, and they never publish in English. And I think it's their fault. I, I always say, okay, we publish this book about mediatization. We invite people from Latin America to publish in English. You have to confront your ideas. But it's not only the problem of Latin America. The same happened in Germany. In Germany, maybe in the last year, they start publishing in English, no? and that's fantastic. I'm working in media evolution, and the, um, for example, Stober is, is, a, is a German researcher of media evolution, and he has only a couple of articles in English. The rest of his book are in German. <laughs> I say, I should study German. Uh, so it's impossible to study all the languages. But I think in that sense, English is useful. It's a useful tool for that in, in, in this moment. Maybe in the future we have automatic translations, but we are not discussing about this. <laughs> so, so, and how about Latino USA? So if, if you look at, you know, the map of, of global Latinidad, right? 
We have about 650 million people living in Latin America. About 30 to 40 million, depending on how you count, living in Europe or a little bit in Asia. But you have about 65 million you know, Latinos in the US, Latinos and Latinas, some of whom are first generation, that is immigrants, uh, some of whom have been in the US for a long period of time and you know, from a number of nationalities. From the Spanish vantage point, from European vantage point, what is the place of Latino USA within sort of the, the, the this global Latinidad and etc.? Uh, I think the concept Latino or Latina uh, you, you use a lot here is not a keyword when we talk about that. I think the, the, the idea of Latino is, is an idea that is born in the USA and it's expanded to all this community. But here, yes, we have people that maybe publishing with or doing research with people from Latin America in, in, in the USA, and maybe they use this idea or they, they perceive under the umbrella. But for example, in my case, I'm doing theory about media evolution. I'm not analyzing uh, colonial issues or, or immigrant issues. So I, if you ask me, I, I don't perceive myself under the umbrella of Latino. Maybe I, I'm a Latino researcher, but my research is more theoretical. I'm not moving in that dimension. But obviously, uh, I'm not outside the discussions about that. The discussion about the use of English is, is I, I also participate in this discussion. I, I'm also an immigrant, and it's not the same to do a career being an immigrant than being a local. That's I also I always like the American the USA universities, because when you walk in the, in the building, you see the name of the professors in the departments, and you see people from around the world. And you see, for example, a name from, I suppose, from India or Pakistan, and it's the director of the department. That's impossible to find that in Latin America, in Argentina, you can imagine. It's impossible, but also it's very difficult in Spain. Um, or, not, or, or in Italy. Uh, in, in this sense, I think that, well, I'm coordinating a PhD program. I've been advised dean of a new faculty. So I think in this case, Spain, I, I perceive a more openness uh, respect to this. Hmm? But I, we still have a lot to do in that sense. If we compare with the UK or maybe we compare with the USA. Okay. Now, switching from this sort of more general issues about the university, the interface between the university and society to your own research. You are one of the most noted theoreticians of media change and media evolution. How's the life of a theoretician? It's more common to have empirical researchers in this podcast. So I normally ask, you know, lots of questions about how people choose their topics, etc. How did you become a theoretician and how how is the practice of doing theory? Yes, when I, 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 I was in the university in Rosario, in my second year, I took the course of communication theory, the classic course of the communication theory, from Lassafell and Merton to uh, the, the theory of effects and so on, the classic bibliography. In, that was in, in 1885. And in 86, I joined this group of communication theory as a student. Yeah, it was a, the, we have this uh, uh, 
ayudante alumno was the profile. So I joined this group and I love communication theory. Maybe I, I love reading, I love doing this kind of research. So my feeling with communication theory started in the second year of the undergraduate. And while I was working in, in, my, in the company, in Ars Media in Italy, I was reading books about the new digital communication theories, even if I was outside the university. And I enjoy reading Pierre Levy, oh, Derrick de Kerkhove, no? this revival of McLuhan in the 90s. So I love doing that. In my everyday life, I have projects uh, with empirical work, Uh, and at the same time, I think that theoretical work is more isolated, it's individual, it's more individual work. And the other one is the group work, and there are connections, obviously. For example, now I'm working a lot in the, with the concept of interface, hmm? expanding the concept of interface. And now we have a Spanish project to analyze the platforms and the workers of the platforms, the last mile workers, applying the concept of interface. So, There's a connection, obviously, between the theoretical production and the empirical work. But, for example, media evolution is a thing that I'm working alone, practically. Even if I talk with a lot of people, it's more individual work. And because this work of connecting dots, author, intertextual production, is I, 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 I'm working more alone on that. But um, I think when you were to work in theory, You have to read a lot. You have to learn how to read, to detect things, to compare. I think my formation in semiotics was very important for that, mm -hmm. uh, to, to identify intertextual relationships. And um, I think it's that kind of work. But I think also it's very important um, to, to be creative, to look for new concepts, to know how to test a concept, to know the etymology of the concept, but to be creative. I think to, if we need new concepts, if we need new theories, uh, also uh, the, um, the creation of theories is, 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 it also has a creative dimension. There's a beautiful book called The Art of Social Science Theory or Social Theories. I use it a lot because I, I agree with, um, with this idea of this artistic component also in the creation of new theories. And one thing that I always explain to our PhD students, is that my perception is that now in research, PhD researches, uh, students, they say, oh, the theoretical framework, oh, a couple of authors, they write that and they, they go big data or qualitative research, you know, that's all. And the theory, they don't challenge the theory. And what I always propose in my, our students, I coordinate the program, but I, don't, I do not supervise all the PhD researchers. But I, what I propose to the students is to challenge the theory. Do not leave the theoretical framework as a second chapter of the thesis. At the end of the thesis, go back to the theory, challenge the concept. If the theory does not resist, think a new theory, new concept. This is the approach of, obviously, of Popper, No, Karl Popper, to, 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 theories are always hypotheses. We have to confront them, we have to challenge the theories. So um, at least in the Spanish tradition, ah, the theory, okay, let's go to the empirical work. And I think we should always go back to the theory. Very important. 
very important point. And if I could can go back to something that you said before, even if you wanna do theoretical work, you say you have to learn how to read. If you could give some advice, you say, okay, these are some of the things I learned about how to read. What would be your two or three sort of main ideas about how one should read? Well, I, there are so many things because you, at the end, scientific discourse is a storytelling. Um, I come from the tradition of semiotics, discourse analysis, uh, Eliseo Veron's tradition, for example, from Argentina. And I think to have this approach when you read theory or academic works, uh, to detect the main concepts, how they use that, if they define or not the concepts. And, and I repeat it again, the intertextuality. I think the, this theoretical framework that uh, approach that comes from uh, Yurik Lotman and uh, La Cristeva, all this intertextual approach in semiotics and also in narratology, if you were, um, is very important when you are reading, constructing theory. Theories are conversations at the end. So to detect who is talking about what is, is part of the theoretical work. And to compare, the, the, to, to look for the relationships between the concepts and the conceptions, that's part of the theoretical work. Uh, I think it's, it's also, to, yes, you know very well psychoanalysis. Uh, psychoanalysis is about to learn how to hear. Here's to learn how to read theoretical text, mm, um, to pay attention to all these things, and, and also to propose your relationships. No? Uh, I think also to read fiction is important. <laughs> In my case, also to write fiction. <laughs> but uh, I think it's important also. Um, because in, in literature studies, they have a long tradition doing this kind of work, comparing different authors. And I think we have, we have a lot of to learn from, from this kind of work, from the people who has been working with fiction. And the other thing is to learn how to use the databases. Um, in our PhD program, one, one of the first courses that we have, and we have the course, we have the first uh, production of our PhD program is this little book um, about how to do systematic bibliographic research. That's fantastic. Now, before we use, we had to travel to, to go to the library of the New York University to get that article. Now we have everything online. So we are teaching our students to, to do this kind of archeological work using keywords and exploiting the beautiful databases that we have. Now, Carlos, all that you're saying requires a significant level of focus, um, attention, and, and a certain level of headspace or mental space, um, and requires time. Um, a lot of uh, students in particular, but in, you know, or younger scholars, but also across the generations, are saying now that there is a push towards production and efficiency and productivism, that um, it's a way at that attention at that time, right? Um, that, that one reads to write rather than one reads to learn, right? As director of the doctoral program at Popper Fabra and as a noted scholar yourself, have you seen this trend? Um, and if so, what is your take about how to handle it? Yeah, when I 
talk about the transformation of the Spanish universities in 2005 because of the general European process of Bologna uh, is also that, no? this criteria of efficiency and publications, this quantification of the production, and now it's, it's everywhere that. And maybe Latin America is arriving right now, but I think in 10 years, I, I, I guess that in Latin America countries, they will be like in the rest of the world. Uh, well, it's part of this capitalist logic also to be productive. Mm, what I perceive in the young people who is working in our department, their thing is publish or perish, obviously, publish, publish, publish. My recommendation is publish one article every year in a good journal and do not publish four, five, six different things at the end. I think we have too many publications. Uh, we have an infoxication of papers. So I think we should teach our people to reduce the number of publications, to increase the quality. And I think we, we, have, to, we have to go in this direction because it's, um, we have to keep clean our academic ecosystem. Yeah? We have to, I think we have to do that. I, and sometimes the system, we have a pressure to, to go in that direction, but we have to, we have to change that because it's, 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 it's a nonsense. And people should enjoy doing the PhD. People should enjoy working in the university. And sometimes we do not do that because we have a lot of administrative issues to solve. And, and we have also to teach, to prepare our classes. So I think um, we should try to go, to reduce this, this kind of, this pressure to publish and publish and publish. I think we should publish less and in increase maybe the, the increase the quality of the content, obviously, but increase the, the conversation about the text that we produce. It has no sense to publish 10 articles and then nobody reads them. Okay. And then if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change. What would you wish for? Would you wish for this change or would you wish for another change? Well, if we talk about the Spanish system, this the last three days we have a meeting with our students. We have a three days uh, activities, uh, presentation of the researches. And one thing is, 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 I think the resources. We do not have so many scholarships, for example, in Spain, we don't have a lot of financial support. For, for doing research. When you compare the situation of Spain with other countries, is if you see the productivity of Spanish scholars, it's really high because when you check the real resources that we have, um, and the same happens in Latin America, because sometimes, you know, the situation in Argentina is not very good for the universities and they're producing. And I think that's one wish I would like to have more resources. Um, and another wish, I think, but we are moving in a good direction in this sense, is more exchanges, more, more, more movements between countries, between departments. And I think that's, we are moving in a good direction. We have more exchanges now. We are going to a global, really global um, media and communication studies ecosystem. All right. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you, Carlos, uh, thank you, for Carlos. sharing your your knowledge and your experience with us uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end and uh, 
I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye and thank you again, Carlos. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. 